Good morning. Well, today is Communion Sunday, and so we're going to examine uh, a God tune, a psalm from the book of Songs in the Old Testament. So while you're turning to Psalm 126, Psalm 126, while you're turning there, I want to um, tell a little story that you probably won't understand the connection until the, the end of the sermon. But once upon a time during the Great Depression in about the 1930s, uh, there was a man and uh, he was on the street, hunched over, leaned up against one of the city buildings. And he was holding his ribs and another person walking by happened to notice him and he walked up to him and he said, sir, are you okay?" And the man slowly and painfully lifted his body straight up to give an answer. And when he did, the stranger noticed his bloody, swollen face. And the the injured man looked at the stranger and he looked him right in the eye. And he said, I couldn't be better. His name was Hans. And his wife had died a few years earlier. Money was very tight in that day and they did not could not afford the medication to treat her. People were so poor in that day that they literally couldn't feed their families. Some of the parents had to uh, farm out their children, give away their children, give them to relatives that perhaps had more money to be able to feed them. They'd hire out their children, whatever it took to put food in their stomach. Some were forced simply just to give their children Away. The times were so hard, the providers of the family, the men, some of the men not able to provide, committed suicide. And others simply gave up and abandoned their wives and their children. But not Hans. Hans was a very, very loyal soul. And he vowed to himself to do whatever it took to hold his family together and to keep them sound and to keep them whole. And he had four children. And when he wasn't able to find work, he would stay home and care for his children. When he'd get a temporary job, whether it was a few hours or a few days, he would go and work and his sister would help care for his children. He was a big guy. He was a smart guy. He was a very, very capable man. But sometimes there simply was no work and nothing to do with the economy at rock bottom. Desperate times, sometimes in desperate times, people do desperate things. It was during this era that bare knuckle boxing became very popular because it created an escape for some. It created an excitement for others where mostly it was gloomy. And so some were actually willing to pay and bet pay to watch fights and bet what little money they had to be able to escape and experience at least a brief moment of joy. Because Hans was a big guy and a smart guy and a capable guy, he was a contender. Hans never won, but he always just barely lost. And so you knew when Hans was going to fight that you were going to see a good fight. The fans got what they wanted when his name was on the docket. And so Whenever they would allow him to, he would go 
And he would fight. And he would lose. And he would limp home with his bloodied face. A face bloodied many times. Now scars were beginning to form. But those scars and that blood and the cuts were very, very important to Hans. Because those were the very marks that enabled him to feed his family. It meant at least for that day that he wouldn't have to go home and watch his children hold their stomachs or watch his children just stare blankly. And so when a stranger asked him, sir, are you okay?" And Hans replied in great pain, couldn't be better. He meant every word. As a matter of fact, if his ribs didn't hurt so badly, he would let out a loud laugh. He was filled with joy. His pain meant that his children, his family, what was left of it, could gain. As a matter of fact, in the mornings when the children woke and greeted their father with a kiss as they did every morning, they learned. They learned on the mornings that when dad was slow to move and when dad was in pain and his fists were wrapped and dry blood was on his face and his eyes were swollen, they learned that that was a day that they were going to live well. That was a day where they could feast, a day where they could hope, a day where they could live whole and completely enjoy their lives. And Hans took great joy in that. Watching his family thrive. And in the back of his mind, he was wondering, when can I fight again? He couldn't be better. Psalm 126, short psalm, six verses. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Najib. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's a short psalm, but one of the things I really treasure about this psalm is that, in a sense, it gives us a big picture of a believer's life, a Christian's life. And we all know, if we're believers, that, yes, we have ups, high ups, and we have downs, low downs. Life takes us different places. The world that we live in, we have times of great rejoicing, we have times of Tremendous weeping, tremendous loss, times of freedom and times of bondage. Times where we couldn't be happier, we think I just couldn't even be any happier than I am today. And then there's other times where literally we could not be sadder, just not at all. And this psalm displays emotions. It, it displays, displays the emotions of the people of God. That live in this world, the same world that we live in. And this psalm describes really two errors. 
the first three verses, it describes an era of great gladness, an era of great joy where the people of God were in captivity or they were in bondage. Uh, they, they were uh, it was a times of calamity and God came through in a grand way and he restored their fortunes. He he put things back like they were and he just filled their lives with plenty and filled their lives with joy. And then the last three verses basically say, well, they're back in this position where they need to be restored again. Whatever it is that happened in their lives. They were restored. When? We don't know for sure. Most people read this psalm and say, well, obviously it was when God released them after years of captivity. Now, finally, under the Persians. And that very well could be. We don't know for sure. There were lots of times in Israel's history where they were they, they experienced defeat, great defeat, but also tremendous victory. But we don't know, have to know the exact historical setting in order to glean and appreciate this psalm and be blessed by it. And we find here a people that are drawing from their memories. They have very good memories of this time. A time where there was great sadness and then a time of incredible joy. And yet now they're living in sorrow. So you have joy and you have sorrow, joy and sorrow, and everything in between. And that's a picture of the life of a believer or the people of God. They understood both. Do we understand both? Do we understand the significance of joy? Do we understand the significance of those dark days, those dark days of tremendous sorrow? And what does this scripture mean in verse five? When the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Well, last Sunday, if you were here, you would know that Preston shared his testimony. It was a testimony very, very real, very raw. And it's a reminder how messy life can be. And in this lifetime, God doesn't always tie up every little loose end that we would like to be tied up. And it was as a result of that sermon and that or that testimony in time of ministry that some of us, many of you shed tears as well. What do those tears mean? Are tears for believers just tears? Is there actually biblical significance to this fluid that flows from us when our hearts are so sad? What does God have in mind? And is there even really a right thing to cry about and a wrong thing to cry about? What is their place? Does this verse seem to hint that actually the sadness of life and the sadness in our hearts and the way it's poured out has some kind of gospel power in it to produce good and beautiful things? What does this psalm teach us about weeping? I want us to look at, just break it into two points. They're not in your bulletin because I didn't have them before I submitted the sermon title. But I want to look at this idea of tears intensified and then tears sown. Tears intensified. Ecclesiastes 
chapter 3, verse 4, says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. And so as we go through life in this world that we've been born into, that's what we will experience. Times of joy and times of grief, times where we want to lift up and kick our heels, and you have. And times where you didn't even want to get out of bed. The sun was not shining for you. That's what life brings us if you live in this world. Sometimes both can be contagious. Sometimes we pick up on each other's sadness. And sometimes we just pick up on each other's joy and run with it. I remember uh, years ago, before Josiah was born, right before Josiah was born, he was still right, well, not in here, but in there. Uh, and um, we had the church had a baby shower for us and it was co-ed. I don't know what you call them, but I'm calling it co-ed because I don't know what else to call it. But anyway, so there were gifts there. Guys and girls were invited to this shower. It was at the coffee house and crew. So I think I got a few guy gifts like tools or something. And then we got kid, uh, child, infant gifts, diapers, and then like a cool pack and play and things like this. It was a neat time. And a lot of you probably don't know Roy Meekins and Paul Foote. Um, but back in that day, they were there enjoying the shower. It was kind of new. I mean, what guy goes to a baby shower? It was kind of a new experience. Anyway, they're, they're clowns. They're always cracking jokes and stuff. And they had cracked this joke. And they were laughing at themselves with this joke. Sitting beside them is Corky Abernathy. He was also there. And then I'm beside Corky. And so... Um, you know, Lisa's opening gifts and everybody's like, ooh and ah. And these guys are laughing. And then Corky's just, he can't contain it. And he's laughing and I'm starting to laugh. And I look over at Corky and I say, what are, you, what are they laughing at? And he says, I don't know. And I said, well, what are you laughing at? I'm just laughing at them laughing is basically what he said. So then I start laughing at the fact that Corky is laughing at them laughing. Sometimes you don't know when it's going to hit you. But life can bring a lot of good, funny times. It just can. They're not expected. Life can be that good. And it can also plummet just the same. These things can be contagious. In the beginning of this psalm, God had manifested himself. The psalmist says just in a way that was so grand and marvelous and magnificent that not only... Did God's people take notice? But even the pagan nations took notice at what God did. And and they said, in essence, now that's a God thing. That's God. I mean, I I know God's and what your God did for you. That, that's something. I mean, that's like the God of all gods. And it doesn't say that they repented and they believed, but it does say it stopped them in their tracks and they acknowledged. Wow. That deliverance. That restoration. I, they marveled at it. They at least acknowledged the work in the hand of the living God. And yet as grand as it was, so grand that it caught the attention of unbelievers. Here are God's people in a bad place again, longing for that same kind of restoration. And I think even in that scene, there's a, a lesson or something to take note of. And that is that as magnificent as God's times of restoration and deliverance for us can be. Doesn't mean they're going to last forever. Doesn't mean that they stayed in that time 
and that their joy was unbroken. It was broken. And it was broken because they live in a broken world. Now, the world to come is just all joy and no brokenness. The world they lived in, the world we live in, it's a broken world. The curse is being removed by Christ, the power of the blood, but it's still among us. It has not completely been removed. So the time will come. No matter what mountaintop we're on, the time will come again in this life just because we're here and it's the way it is. The greatest mountaintop experiences do not eliminate the grief. It will find us in some shape and form. And I'm grateful for the grace of God that does spare us at times. He spares us at times. He protects us. He guards us. He shields us like this great shepherd that went after the lost sheep. But there are times where it comes in. And we'll laugh in the Lord and we'll cry in the Lord. We get them both as believers, uh, almost even handedly, I guess, for some of us. We get them both. For some of us, coming to Christ is so relieving. It's, it's so satisfying that we just want it to last forever. I remember as a 19-year-old, I'll never forget the night that I came to Christ. It was dramatic. And, and, and I begged for Christ to come into my life because I was pretty sure I was beyond saving. Because I had done too many things and I had rejected Him for too long and I just thought, oh well. But I, it made me more desperate. And I begged for salvation. And that particular night, Christ came into my heart and He relieved the burdens And one of the feelings that I had never experienced before was this feeling of just being clean. What does it feel like to be clean? I didn't know because I didn't know what to do with my sin all growing up. And I grew up, you know, I knew God and 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 we we confessed and repented, not to each other. We didn't really ask forgiveness as a family. You just kind of like got over your sin and you stopped doing it. And so I had all this baggage. I had all this filth and the sin and. And I would knew knew it was wrong and I try to stop it. And sometimes I couldn't, sometimes I couldn't. But mostly I just like, okay, I got to push it down here. But it always followed me around. And this night I was clean. Like I knew what it felt like literally physically, spiritually to be clean before God. I had never felt that before. It reminded me of um, a rental house that my dad was a rental farm, actually, that my dad inherited from his dad. And there were some farmers and there's a family there. And it was it was kind of the farm had just gone downhill when he began to rent it. And they that family got kind of kicked out. And we went one day with our work gloves and our dad got us suited up and said, we got work to do. and We got to clean this house up. And so we went. And the first thing we noticed was that there's this garage. And it was pretty uh, rudimentary. It was just a concrete floor and concrete walls. It was in a section of the house. There's no door to it under the house there. And um this garage was filled with trash. Like it was filled with trash. Most of it was in bags, but it had been ripped. There were rats in it. There were mice in it. There were maggots in it. And this family, for whatever reason, they didn't haul the trash away. They just kept throwing it in this, in the garage. And it just was gross. And it really reminded me of my life before Christ because I just liked the, the filth, the trash. I just kind of, I didn't know what to do. And I just would put it over here and put it over here. But it was always with me. But the night I got saved, it was hauled away. 
It was taken care of. And I wanted that feeling to last forever, but it didn't. It didn't. It lasted a long time. By God's grace. Christ relieved me. And it didn't last forever. Why is a Christian's life not only or just or exclusively a life of rejoicing? But because our Savior, the very one who saves us from sin, is a rejoicer and a weeper. The very God that saves us, that comes into our lives, he brings rejoicing. He also brings weeping because he himself has reason to weep and does. Has reason to mourn and feel deep and great sorrow. And so when we ask Christ to come into our lives, we're asking both. And he brings both. He brings elation and he brings deep sorrow. One of the things that enthralls me about Jesus's first miracle uh, when he turned the water into wine in the wedding of Cana. I really like that. Um, it, it blows my mind. You think if I'm going to if Christ is going to start his ministry, what a way to start your ministry. You think he'd start it with just raising the dead. He starts it like almost privately with his mom asking favor, maybe there's a wedding going on and weddings in that culture uh, were just like one of the ultimate times for people to rejoice. And what we would say party today, lots of laughter, lots of fun, lots of feasting and 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 drinking. And so to run out of wine means the rejoicing is over. And I like this passage because it's a statement, I think, the fact that Jesus performed his first miracle. It's like Jesus saying, I, I love marriage. I sanction marriage. I believe in it and I want my people to be happy about these kind of things. This is a good thing to be happy about in this life. It's something that has been it's been designed by God. I want it to continue. It's kind of like uh, making a statement of what you stand for, what you support. And, and along with that, I think also is Jesus saying, and I've also come that you might rejoice. With Jesus is rejoicing and he turns the water into wine and the wedding and the rejoicing and the singing and the dancing. They just go on and on and on because, man, this is prime wine. So Jesus loves that. He, he brings that. He enjoys that. I believe that miracle. He comes to bring joy. But he himself was not spared grief. He was a man of many sorrows. He cried. He wept. He felt both. And so, yes, if we follow him, we will feel both. And you think, okay, but you said Tears intensified and you haven't said anything about intensified. So what are you talking? Well, when we become Christians, the emotions that we're born with, emotions that we're given, I believe are intensified. So it's not like you were never sad or happy before you became a Christian. But when you become a Christian, they're intensified. They're peaked. They become more alert. And the reason is because God supernaturally does something in us and he gives us knowledge and we know him and we know life and we know each other 
like we never knew before. We see things, but not only do we know things and see things, we feel things like we've never felt them before because of the new knowledge that we have. We don't look at the world the same. We don't look at each other the same. A.W. Tozer used to say when a man gets converted, his cat should know it. Because everything is treated differently. A level of sadness is intensified. And a level of joy. God's people in them in this psalm, there's this longing. A longing in them crying out for restoration. And they're crying out to God. In their brokenness because they know their God fixes things. They know their God forgives. They know their God is merciful. And so within the, in this brokenness, they're still like, God can help us in this. They feel this deeply. The loss. And they long to feel the gain like they once felt it. Well, why do we not only... Laugh harder or more fully, but also weep harder. It's because we are to conform to the image of Christ. And if we're going to do that, and that's what the Holy Spirit does in growing us and sanctifying us. If we're going to be more like Christ, then we're going to feel things more deeply. Christ cried because he was holier than we are. And when he saw sin and filth, it broke him more than it breaks us. But we're on our way to that. And when he saw good things, he took it in deeper. Things of God, he took it in deeper and he and he laughed. And we're going to be more like that. We're going to see good things and we're going to rejoice with you over those good things. But when Christ comes in, we become more like him. And then we see the brokenness and the things that didn't we didn't care about anymore. Now we care about the relationships where we'd say, I don't need that person in my life. Who needs mom? Who needs dad? Who needs that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that spouse? I'll just go on and live my own life. But when Christ is in there, it doesn't work. Because he cares, you care. And because he breaks over the things that are broken in this world, we break over them. I don't know if it's true for you, but I can certainly say it's true for me. Now, maybe you became Christian at a young age and you're not really even sure if you're more sensitive. I think you are. You just have worn it so long you don't realize it. But for me, I could tell a difference. And if you think I'm stoic now, before I came to Christ... I remember a time at Bible college when I was sitting at my desk studying and I was just completely overtaken by the holiness of God and my own sin in a way that I never had before. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> uh, I just, I started to cry. And... Um, I, I, ha, I hadn't cried for years because I was good at hardening my heart to not cry. I was good at not crying. I was great at it. And here I am crying. So what do I do? 
I run to the bathroom and look in the mirror to see what I look like crying because I didn't know what I looked like crying. And it ruined the whole moment because then I stopped crying. But there's a sensitivity there that the Spirit brought to things. Some people get up here and what do they do? Cry. Grown men cry. Lips quivering. It's a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit because God is there. See, we cry, we hurt. They could have taken a different approach. They could have just said the Israelites, oh, well, it's the way life is. Just get over it. There's nothing you can do about it. Bad things happen. Just live with it. Don't be a baby and cry. Get over yourself. But they didn't do that. They couldn't do that because they knew God was real and they knew that God could fix things. And they knew because God lives, there's always hope and He has fixed them so many times before and restored them. They're going to hope in God. Take their lickings when they need to take their lickings, but not be apathetic. They still care. And if that means hurting, so be it. When you don't have a true safe place to take your hurts and your sins, what else can you do but harden your heart? Do just the opposite. You harden your heart. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to care. Caring hurts too much. You know how much it hurts when you're somebody that you love or invested in leaves this world? Or a relationship leaves that relationship? Who wants that pain? So we learn to train our hearts to not care and to be hard so we can spare ourselves. There's lots of verses that refer to this, but I'll look at Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and it says this. This is the Lord speaking. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And what else is he going to do? I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. You see part of the process of what it means to be restored what it means to be saved and delivered. A heart untouched by God is is stone. It's unfeeling. It has to be in a sense because otherwise it would be crying all the time and hurting all the time. It doesn't know what to do with its pain. doesn't know if it's right to cry or not or if crying has a purpose. It goes into self-protection mode, training itself constantly not to feel, not to hurt, not to go deep. To spare itself. We train to push out the emotions. Certain things. You don't want them. And then when God comes in. He melts. And he gives a heart of flesh. And and you feel. Your your senses. Are awakened. And they're alert. By the Holy Spirit. And you're compassionate to things. And you're crying about things. That perhaps you never cried over before. And you see the evil. And the brokenness in the world. And it hurts. It's not just okay for Christians to cry. It's proper. You think about the most perfect heart to ever exist, the heart of Christ. And what did it do? It was perfectly whole and perfectly sinless. What did that heart do? But it felt deeply. 
And that heart cried. Jesus cried. He wept. He empathized. He sympathized. He cried over the destructiveness of sin. The choices of people. And when you become a Christian, you realize that when you sin, you didn't just break a rule. You just broke a heart. And then you become a Christian and you find yourself sorrowful a lot because then you realize how your sin grieves God. And you cry and you repent over, I don't love God enough. I'm not praising him enough. He's he's more worthy than what I'm giving him and I know it and I'm broken over it. Cynicism and coldness makes way for the warmth of Christ. You don't look at things the same. There's always a joy and there's always a grief. I think one of the things that this psalm teaches us is that joy always has the final word. Timothy Keller described it as grief is is temporary. But joy is permanent for the Christian. And it's like um, if you have a gas stove or a gas furnace. What do you have that's always burning? But that little pilot light. That little blue flame. And sometimes it's just flickering. It's just there for when you need it. And then other times it's full blast. With its warmth and its heat. And its productivity. And that's the joy of the Lord. It may be just there in small form, but when you're a Christian, it is always there. Joy gets the final word. It's the final song for every believer. And then secondly, tears sown. They say, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Najib. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed. For sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The Najib is an area of desert in southern Palestine. And you guys know desert. You've seen them. Maybe you've been to one or you've seen it on TV. It's dry. It's barren. Nothing grows. It's hot. It's just desolate. Not a place you go to vacation. Not a place you dream of. I want to go to the desert. Very, very barren. But once in a while. Maybe once a year, maybe not even that often. It would rain in the distant mountains. It would rain so much that the water would pull and it would begin to run down the hill. And it would go so far as to reach the desert. And there were ravines there. And when soon as that water hit the desert, life popped up everywhere. And the entire place was transformed. Things you had no idea. Beautiful things were just waiting for their thirst to be quenched. So they could grow and bloom and blossom. And it all happens real quickly. And it becomes a beautiful, beautiful place. When that water soaks in and visits it. And that's what they want. They want that water again. They want to be brought back to life. They want to bloom. They want to blossom. And God can do that. He can pop good things and beautiful things out of nowhere. They want their fortunes to come back to life. And it's a theme That we find throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, with sorrows and joy. And the sorrows are temporary. A familiar psalm, Psalm 35. Weeping may tarry for the night, 
what comes in the morning. And the idea is that, okay, hang on. This is not going to last forever. Joy is on its way. Joy comes in the morning. And that's a truth that we can hang our hats on. Derek Kidner, who wrote a, my favorite commentary on Proverbs, also wrote a commentary on Psalms. And he says that the New Testament teaches that, that suffering is temporary and joy comes in the morning, but it actually goes beyond that. It doesn't just give... It, um, in, in the New Testament, sorrow doesn't just give way to joy. Sorrow produces joy. So it's not just hang on until joy comes. It's while I'm here in this time of sorrow, something miraculous is happening. For those under the umbrella of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.17, the Apostle Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond our comparison. And that word um, preparing, it means something is being produced by our suffering, by our grieving, by our sorrow, by our tears. Something um, supernatural is being produced for kingdom purposes that ends in a weight of glory, that ends in a time of joy. So tears for the believer, feeling what God feels, being sensitive to kingdom things and grieving over what God grieves about. Produce good kingdom things. Isn't that amazing that something so painful, God even uses that. Even uses that. In his economy to remove the curse and to bring about the world to come. Produces, achieves. Christ knows he was a man of sorrows. He was rejected. He was scorned. He was beaten. He was crucified. But his sorrows didn't just give way to joy. His suffering produced joy. There would be no joy for us without the suffering and the, and the tears and the bloodied face and feet and hands of Christ. It produced. And so we look at this Old Testament psalm. It's the closest thing to what the New Testament teaches. Tears are sown. And what grows out of it is shouts of joy. And you bring in this harvest. These guys are coming back with their harvest because the tears watered the ground like in the desert and it brought good things. Did you know grieving could do that for you as a believer? When we think this is just a waste of time, I can't wait to get over this. There's something in there that God has for us that's very important in the plan of redemption. It's the good news of Christ. It's the gospel. We become children of God and we experience the joys and the delights and the satisfaction. And yes, the experience of what it really feels like to be clean. Only because of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He didn't just come to show us how to live. 
He came and died in our place and lived in our place. And because he did that, everything for a child of God is safe. He made it safe. Our greatest fear, the wrath of God, now is our friend because of what Christ did on the cross. He's the safe place now that we can go with our flaws, our sins. We can take everything to him that he knows and he may cry with us, but he's safe. There's a freedom that we have that Christ has gained for us to tell God everything. Sorrow and weeping. How many times does the Apostle Paul often talk to the churches and the people that he met, the saints, and a lot of them were his converts. And he says, I write this to you in tears. I, I admonish you. I say this. I speak this to you in tears. Why tears? Because saying things that are hard to people you love hurt. That's what he's saying. I love you and it's hard for me to say this to you. Because I know it's going to upset some of you. I know it's going to jab and stick some of you. But you need to hear it. And truth prevails. It grieves me. But what will bring joy to me is to watch God's truth grow in you and change you and transform you. And so, though I say it in tears and admonish you in tears, nonetheless I admonish you to bring forth the growth and the joy of Christ. Timothy Keller says it's gospel joy that produces gospel tears. And then gospel tears produce a deeper gospel joy. And that's what it means to live the Christian life because of the Lord. Joy and suffering. Let me close by quoting the opening story. In fact, in the mornings when the children woke and greeted their father with a kiss, they knew that if dad was sore, they knew that if dad's fists were wrapped and his eyes were black and his face was swollen, that they could be festive. They were allowed to be themselves. They were allowed to love life, to eat well and to live well. And this brought a smile on Hans's face. And he waited for a time. When he could lose again, so they could gain. He couldn't be better. May our mouths be filled with joy and may our mouths be filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy because of our good, good Father. May God bless the preaching of His Word.